according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by here, to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 8 is our text this morning. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You've heard it a thousand times. You've had unbelievers throw it in your face. Unbelievers without a clue what the passage is dealing with. I was asked a moment ago what the status was with the church property. I don't know. Uh, We're still looking into it as to whether or not the member covenant will, uh, the business member covenant will prevent us from moving in, uh, whether those covenant agreements are still in force, whether there's still a a thing. Anyway, it's in the Lord's hands. It's uh, the neat thing about sovereignty. He's in charge. We will, uh, we will observe circumstances as he chooses to unveil them. They have a listing of approved commercial properties that can function, businesses that can operate in that business park, and uh, a church is not on that list. So it's open to interpretation by real estate attorneys, commercial attorneys, and so forth as to whether or not uh, they can ban us from the property uh, and whether they can legally ban us from the property. The city cannot do so. The state cannot do so. Um, but there is still a question of whether a private business park can choose to do so. So anyway, we'll see. Lord's in charge, and we'll uh, we'll take it from there. But let's take time for prayer, making sure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do... Thank you for the faithfulness of your word, for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. We have uh, freedoms and uh, privileges and opportunities that so many brothers and sisters around the world could only dream of having, Father, and, uh, including the freedom to gather this morning and, and to study your word. So, Father, we ask for distractions to be set aside and concentration upon your truth. Father, the matters we discuss with respect to our relocation and the property search and The property we believe was your provision for us. Uh, Father, if that is indeed the case, then you will will continue to make that clear or you will shut the door. And that's fine, Father. It's not our plan we're trying to pursue. We simply want to be obedient to the plans and designs that you have for us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for our time in the Word today. We want to learn the truth. We want to be free. We want to understand free from what and uh, free... Uh, for what and uh, I pray that we would have the understanding of that today and I thank you in Christ's name amen all right in the growing conflict with the devil's sons we are at main point three which um, I failed to jot the slide number down we'll just take a guess there slide 10 we're going to cover main point three, subpoints A, B, C, and D today. There will then be points four, five, and six that will take us down to the end of the chapter. I don't anticipate um, getting that far this morning. In fact, I don't even have slides for those verses this morning. But uh, we've got quite a bit to cover, actually, in uh, these verses right here. So in the context, this is in the aftermath of, this is still in the same setting, Jerusalem, Feast of Tabernacles, and the uh, the following days. Now, we, we don't have the precise day 
uh, or a marker for a day since the midpoint of the feast when he finally could contain his silence no longer and began to teach. And that gathered a lot of attention. It also gathered a lot of uh, conflict. The Pharisees tried having him arrested and so forth. That's the context at the end of chapter 7 that leads right into chapter 8 with the light of the world message starting in verse 12. And there's nothing in the text that indicates any break of time And so we believe we're still dealing with the Feast of Tabernacles, either the final days, it was an eight-day feast, or uh, in, you know, the days immediately following the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, The the setting is Jerusalem. The audience is largely uh, religious Jews that are in opposition to his ministry, that uh, they are very disapproving of his ministry. They're disapproving of his message. Uh, They're disapproving... I think the biggest disapprovement they have is uh, their uh, his followers uh, don't don't reach the social status that uh, that they prefer. Uh, he teaches prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles and Roman soldiers and and just no shortage of of ne'er do wells. And as far as these legalists are concerned, that's just beyond the pale. He can't really be a prophet. If he was a prophet, he wouldn't let you know that woman or other. Uh, folks touch him the way that they touch him and he wouldn't eat with them and he wouldn't drink the things he drinks see so um anyway they're they're very negative they want him arrested they want him dead they've they've been seeking his death for some time now in the process of this he sticks to his guns he keeps teaching the truth he keeps proclaiming the gospel and wouldn't you know it in john 8 30 we read that as he spoke these things many came to believe in him Many came to believe in him. And so out of the multitudes, out of the crowds, whatever percentage, we're told many, but certain individuals within the larger masses actually came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ in the process of hearing. Remember, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this process takes place. Now, so we read in verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, And what's critical for us to recognize here is that there's nothing in this verse, in the express words or in the implied anything, that indicates that he somehow sequestered them, he pulled them out, that he he divided them up, and that he dismissed the unbelievers, and that he only, you know, he went into a private room to talk to those that had a saving faith. All right? No, the indication is he's still speaking to the larger group, but the words are particularly meant for those that have just now crossed from death into life. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, the tenses here are interesting. If is a maybe you will, maybe you won't. Continue is the idea of abiding or dwelling which uh, should be continuous, it should be consistent in our daily life, and it could happen today, it could start immediately, it could start and it should start immediately. If somebody just got saved this morning, then you want to put them into that abiding in the word mentality on day one. Don't let them uh, develop bad habits on their first day in, the, in, in eternal life. Uh, ground them in good habits before they know any better, all right? or before they know any different, I won't say better, before they know any different Ralph tells a story when he was in Brookings, uh, they had some several dozen that all came to salvation within uh, a very short period of time, like in a 90 day period of time, they had 48 people saved. 
And all these brand new believers, all brand new babes in Christ, didn't know a thing, never been in church before, didn't know how religion was supposed to work or anything. And so they asked him, well, how often should we come to church? Every day. They didn't know, right? Well, are we supposed to be in prayer meeting? Every day, right? And since they didn't know any different, get them grounded right from day one. So uh, you have a brand new believer, demonstrate for them, you know what? You're a child of God now. You're a son of God, a daughter of God, but you are not yet a disciple. To become a disciple requires the conditional activity of abiding in the Word of God. And so these were the subpoints. Again, main point three, the message of truth and freedom was meant specifically for the believing ones within the crowd, but it was verbally responded to by the predominantly unbelieving ones. So when he gives them this message of truth and freedom, they answer him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In verse 33, that response is the response of the predominantly unbelieving masses, right? The predominantly unbelieving masses, not the faith response or the positive volition response of those that have just uh, mere moments ago become believers. So, under this then, important definitions to be very clear on. Believing in Christ turns an unbeliever into a believer. That's just basic vocabulary. Turns the unregenerate to regenerate. Turns the condemned human in Adam to a redeemed human in Christ. Lots of different ways we can express this. You understand is the difference from before the cross to after the cross. The trigger for that is the non-meritorious function of faith. This is the work, as it were, of evangelism. Play on words, and some people don't like it, but Jesus used it with the Pharisees. And when they say, well, what work must we do? And he says, this is the work you must do. Believe. All right, in John chapter 6. So this is, uh, this is the work of evangelism. Now, the second step... Abiding in the Word of God turns a believer into a true disciple. Abiding in the Word of God turns a believer into a true disciple. There are false disciples out there. Some, most are unregenerate, but some are regenerate, yet not abiding in the Word. They are redeemed. They will be in heaven for all eternity, but presently, as of today, they are not abiding in the Word of God. And so this is the principle. Now, the vocabulary for this, again, subpoint B, abiding in the Word of God turns a believer into a true disciple. Now, salvation, of course, can't be lost, but disciple status? Absolutely. I've known believers that uh, were true disciples for many, many years, faithful in the Word. They uh, sat in Bible class. They filled notebooks full of notes. They accumulated a lot of knowledge. Um, I don't know their heart. No one can look upon the heart. Jesus Christ knows whether or not that was knowledge minus love, you know, where knowledge puffs up and love edifies, or whether it was a hearer only and not a doer. I don't know. All I know is from what I've observed is that after many years under doctrinal teaching, they decided that it wasn't a priority anymore. Came to a decision that, well, that's sufficient, that's enough, they've learned enough, they've grown enough, they're content with where they are in their maturity or in their understanding or what have you. And, uh, and they determined that the, the daily consistent intake of the Word of God is no longer a priority. 
their appetite has diminished from what it had been in previous seasons. Well, I would put forth that if they are no longer abiding or remaining or dwelling, if they are no longer menowing in the Word of God, they have forfeited their status as true disciples, as per this verse. This verse phrases it in terms of a conditional clause, whereupon the, um, you have a protasis and an apotasis, and in order for the apotasis to be realized, the protasis must be true. So if, and only if, you abide in my word, then, and only then, you are truly disciples of mine. Those who abide in the word are disciples. Those who choose not to are not disciples. Don't lose salvation, of course not, but you do lose the disciple status. And, and losing disciple status is more than just simply, you know, turning in your student ID card and, and, and uh, forfeiting your student discount at the student bookstore. It uh, actually forfeits the consequences to being a disciple, which is what's expressed in verse 32. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. You must be a true disciple to know the truth. And knowing the truth, here is epinosis. I'll show you vocabulary on that in a moment. But the full knowledge, the intimate knowledge, the complete knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And the love affair with Jesus Christ through growing in the word of God is the blessing for true disciples. And it is only through that occupation with Christ in the word of God that sin freedom can be experienced in time. The freedom is, of course, the freedom from sin is described here in the following verses. Uh, he will address this with uh, the critics very shortly, the ones who said they've never been slaves of anybody. And he says, you know, this is a sin problem and you still are slaves, judging by the number of lies you're telling and judging by the pride you're exhibiting. You're of your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning and who is the king over all the sons of pride. So. Vocabulary for this is meno, M-E-N-O, number 3306. Can be used literally, can be used metaphorically. Clearly we have the metaphoric use of it here where our minds are dwelling rather than our bodies that might inhabit or dwell a residence or a city and so forth. And then the term for disciple is methetes. M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S, methetes, number 3101, a pupil, a disciple, literally a learner, somebody who engages in the activity of learning. The taste uh, suffix on so many nouns is, um, red on blue is kind of dark, isn't it? The taste um, ending on so many nouns, masculine nouns, tends to be um, similar to what we have in English with your er endings, er. Farm is a verb. A farmer is someone who farms. Bake is a verb. Baker, right? So when we attach a lot of ers on the end of a lot of verbs, we, we create an occupational uh, noun. And so that's what we have here with taste. I have prophetes is a prophet, somebody who prophetuo prophesies. You've got methetes, uh, a learner, somebody who Montano learns. You've got a lot of taste, masculine nouns. Um, so this is a learner. I love the fact, of course, that it's open to all believers. There's no classification of believers that's entitled to learn. 
There's no limitation as to who the you is. The idea of if you, y'all, second person plural, you guys, not some of you, or the privileged among you, or the, uh, see, this is where uh, Gnosticism and other false cults and other movements come in that say that, well, there's certain people that are more favored, more blessed. They're entitled to a deeper recognition of, of God's truth. Hogwash. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for every single believer. And so, occupying in the Word of God is a privilege of every single believer priest. This was a hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. The universal priesthood of all born-again believers in Christ. That uh, we don't need the, the, the Roman church to interpret uh, or to uh, minister to the non-priesthood laity. We're all priests in Jesus Christ. We all have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We all have the opportunity to learn from the Word of God. We can all be learners, which is what happens here. See, this, this concept was lost to the Pharisees who couldn't figure out why Jesus could be um, so learned being uneducated because he didn't go to their school. So obviously, if you don't go to hit their schools, then you don't learn anything. You don't know anything. You're an idiotes, an idiot. And they couldn't figure out why Jesus knew so much. Because he was a true disciple and they weren't. Under this, the Great Commission, point C. The Great Commission is to make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The Great Commission is to make disciples. The verb that's used is mathetuo, to create learners, to manufacture mathetai. Mathetai is the plural of mathetes. To manufacture disciples. That's mathetuo, number 3100. That's what we're commanded to do. Let's turn over there, and I will actually put it up here for you. Matthew 28. And 18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this commission comes as a consequence of the delegated authority that Jesus has received and then delegated to us. We have the great commission. Interestingly enough, Israel had a mandate as the priestly nation, as the covenant nation, as the steward nation in their stewardship in Old Testament times, they had a mandate to testify to the truth. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus told the Samaritan woman. They had a ambassadorial function similar to our ambassadorial function but they were not under a great commission consistent with our great commission because they operated in a stewardship that actually preceded or um, was not conditioned upon this multi-dimensional authority all authority in heaven and on earth Israel's stewardship is an earthly stewardship. Our stewardship is heavenly. We operate on the earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our assets are in heaven. Our treasure is in heaven. Our economy is in heaven. And our ambassadorship function 
is in heaven. So our great commission is unique. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. All right, we've got um, one imperative verb. We've got three participles in this passage. And I've done this before. I'll do it again. I'll do it a billion times between now and the trumpet if the Lord delays that long. But it's worth highlighting because all too often the, um, the spotlight comes right here. Right? You ever sat in a church and the missionary comes to town or the pastor gets up there and evangelist gets up there and the, you think that the word go was the only word in the verse. <laughs> and then you get all this emphasis on go, go, go. And we get really riled up and yeah, we're going to head off to Papua New Guinea or we're going to go off here to Zambia and all this stuff about go, go, go. And go is not the imperative. Go is not the imperative. You spot your verbs here. And uh, there's your one imperative right there. The other terms, there's your participle to go, which is an aorist participle. And here are baptizing and teaching, your other two participles, which are present participles. Now, you say, I don't care about any of this. All right, maybe not. You don't care. I don't care that you don't care. I'm going to teach it anyway. All right. The imperative is the is the mood of command. That's what we're commanded to do. Make disciples right there. Make disciples. Mathetusata is make disciples as a second person plural imperative. Now, it is described with three other participles defining where or how or in what manner it's supposed to be done. And the participle here for going is actually the aorist participle, which gives you um, the, uh, the aorist participle always precedes the activity of the main verb. So it's a contextual time frame as you go or having gone. You can say wherever you go. It, it's really a minimal emphasis, certainly compared to the to present active participles and without question related to the imperative. So as you go, having gone, having gone, let's, let's use that as an aorist, having gone, wherever you go, make disciples. And so as the Father directs your circumstances, the Father may adjust your geographic will. You, you have a, a period of time where you reside in a particular country or a particular state or a particular city, wherever it is he has placed you, make disciples. Because wherever you are, that's where he's planted you and that's your field of service. Make disciples. Then the two participles that define that, the present participles, show you the contemporaneous activity. Well, how do I make disciples? Baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. Okay. Remember, God desires for all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Baptizing and teaching. In other words, you present gospel information, you evangelize, you see the, the lost uh, become believers, but you don't drop them there. Because if you drop them as simply brand new believers, they're not disciples yet. You have to teach them, baptizing them and teaching them. Uh, God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free and you will be truly my disciples. So this all comes together to recognize that evangelism is not the total story to the Great Commission. As a matter of fact, evangelism is not found in this verse. 
gospel is not in this verse. Evangelize is not in this verse. I dare anybody in English or Greek to find me evangelism or gospel or evangelize in verses 18 through 20. It's not there. Make disciples is there. Baptizing and teaching. But evangelism's not there and gospel's not there. It's only step one of the two-step process for the mandate to make disciples. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to minimize evangelism. It's critical. Try to make a disciple without evangelism, you're dealing with an unbeliever, forget it. But I think all too often, there is a very ripe mission field out there of non-disciple believers. And they don't need evangelism. They're already saved. They need edification. They need to be built up. They need to be taught. They need to be brought into a mindset whereby Bible class is a priority, the priority in their life. So there's our Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples. In order to be a disciple, a born-again believer must continue or abide in doctrine, in the Word of God. Now, point D, where we'll spend the rest of our time today. Intimacy with the truth. Intimacy with the truth provides freedom from sin for the true disciple. Intimacy with the truth. I want to use that term intimacy because the Scripture uses the term to reflect intimacy. Intimacy with the truth provides freedom from sin for the true disciple. Freedom from the practical application, that is, from the, the sinful deeds and practices in time. The sinful deeds and practices in time. Now, as long as we're still in these bodies, we will still have a sin nature. Until we hear the trumpet, we still have the sin nature. Or until our soul departs from our body, we still have a sin nature. So long as you occupy the body you have now, you will have that sin nature you inherited from your father. And his father and his father all the way back to Adam. However, we have provision. Walking by means of the Holy Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, we're told in Galatians chapter 5. We're also told that this intimacy with the truth provides a freedom the truth will set you free. Future tense. The conditional abiding in the Word can take place even now, today, right now, and it should continue. But the freedom comes through time, comes through growth. Once the Word of God you have abided in does the work of transforming and sustaining you. Now, knowing the truth can be thought of in the metaphoric context of sexual intimacy. Knowing the truth. The word knowing. The Hebrew yada, the, the Greek terms for knowing. Many times have the, in the, in the context, have the application of marital activity. That uh, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and gave birth to a son. She said, behold, I have acquired a man child from the Lord. I will name him acquired. And she named him Cain. And the woman gave birth again, and she named him Abel. All right, there's one conception and two births. That's why the rabbis felt that uh, that they were twins. 
in any event, all the things of the man knew his wife, knew his wife, or she knew her husband, the, the, the old King James of knowing. I think the, the modern uh, NASB or New King James, they, they like um, have relations. The man had relations with his wife and she conceived. But literally, the term is knowing or cleaving. Cleaving to the Lord or his word is often communicated in such language. Now, here's another issue. Because the word knowing can, can have the um, understanding of uh, intellectual understanding, right? Where your mentality is cognizant of particular truth. I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay, Knowing can reference mental acquisition of understanding, but knowing can also speak of sex. All right. Same thing with the Lord and his word. They're interchangeable. Who is the Lord? The word in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And so there are places where we read about the Word of God and we ask ourselves, is this the written Word as revealed in the canon of Scripture? Is this the spoken Word as uttered through uh, spirit and well prophets? Or is this the second person of Trinity, God the Son, in a theophany incarnation? We say the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharp and any two-edged sword. Are we talking about Jesus Christ? God the Son, the second member of Trinity? piercing even in the dividing asunder of soul and spirit as a critical judge. Well, Jesus told us that all judgment has been given unto the Son. And the Word of God is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So there are many passages where we read about the Word of God or the Word of the Lord, and it is open to consideration whether that's God the Son, Jesus Christ, or whether it's the written word, or whether it's the spoken word, or whether it's all of the above. Because Jesus is the word. So next time you're thumbing around through the Old Testament somewhere, and maybe one of the prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, whoever, and, and you read, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, you ever stop to think? You could rephrase that. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to Ezekiel saying the word of the lord came to daniel saying jesus christ god the son second member of trinity appeared in theophany glory to his prophet communicating a message so let's look at some of these passages and let's put some thought into it let's start with the proverbs proverbs one let's just turn to proverbs let's thumb through some proverbs and uh, put these here for a reason in this order. It's a little bit backwards from Proverbs to Psalms to Deuteronomy. But uh, then we'll reverse and start heading forwards again from Deuteronomy to Joshua and then back to Psalms. But I want to do it in this order. I agonized over what order to do this in. But let's start with Proverbs. Because... Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ's message to these brand new believers in Jerusalem in John chapter 8 was hardly the first time ever that God told believers, you better abide in the Word of God. <laughs> that was not an earth-shattering message. It was very consistent with Proverbs, very consistent with the Old Testament, consistent with all revealed truth that believers need to abide in the Word of God. 
All right. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To know. To know. Now, is that to mentally learn uh, factual data? To know wisdom and instruction. To discern the sayings of understanding. To receive instruction in wise behavior. Righteousness, justice, and and equity. To give prudence to the naive. To the youth, knowledge and discretion. See, this is our divine provision. It does not come naturally. It's not intuitive to the fallen human nature. In fact, it's just the opposite of your fallen human nature. And it certainly is not the the cooperating message that the cosmos is going to tell you. Like I tried telling our teenagers in the teen class. Uh, We're teaching the truth. And you've got some friends that will cooperate that and testify with the truth. You've got a pastor that's going to teach you the truth. You've got parents who love you that are going to teach you the truth. But there's also a whole host of other people that are going to tell you the direct opposite of what we're telling you. Unbelievers, the cosmos world viewpoint. The world says, oh no, that's wrong. You can do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. Right? Just, you know, wear a condom, don't get pregnant, and you're okay. The world has a message. And it's not consistent with God's message. It's not consistent with a life of wisdom. And uh, the world will tell you that. Your unbelieving friends will tell you that. That's why the snare of being unequally yoked and the, uh, the uh, improper friendships, the dangers of those. Um, and, and then I said, you know what? The biggest thing, too, your own body is not on your side. Because <laughs> your body is going to be telling you the same thing your unbelieving friends are telling you. Yeah, this looks great. I want to do this. Your body is a fallen body, so don't listen to it. No, God's word gives us wisdom and we are to know wisdom. Our mentality, the mentality of our soul is to process the gnosis, the knowledge information. At the same time, our intimacy is to grow with wisdom. And uh, if you need a peek over to chapter 8, I'll tell you who wisdom is. Wisdom is Jesus Christ. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Does not wisdom call. Wisdom is the is Proverbs equivalent of Logos from John 1. All right, over to chapter 2. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, treasuring, internalizing, and treasuring is far more than just simply mentally processing gnosis. Mentally processing gnosis. I know that 2 plus 2 is 4, but I don't treasure that. (laughs) I don't embrace it. I don't caress it. I don't treasure it. I don't have fond um, appreciation. You know, I don't express fondness for 2 plus 2 equals 4. Treasuring in the heart is the soul intimacy that husbands and wives are to have for each other. Over to chapter 4. Uh, I just want you to notice, let me continue this in chapter 2 though. Um, Make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If, uh, If you seek her as silver, her. Now this is poetry and I understand that. I understand that the language of Proverbs is the language of poetry and yet it's communicating a 
an intimacy. It's communicating a, um, a pursuit. If you're raising sons, uh, do, you, do you have anything to tell them as far as pursuing girls? <laughs> right? Uh, you know, son, you know, they're, of course, when they're young enough, girls are gross and it's not really, uh, you know, it's not a concern. But at some particular quirky point of adolescence, hormones start developing and everything, thinking starts getting modified. And, and all of a sudden, uh, girls start to have um, uh, interesting uh, features. And then you start thinking, hmm, wonder what this is like. So wisdom tells us, these are words of parents to a son about her, the right kind of her. Also, Proverbs warns about the wrong kind of her. So, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. I just want you to notice this, the language of this. All right, over to chapter 4. Six, eight, and ten. Verse five says, "Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not uh, forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth." I think this is what I, what I was describing earlier. Believers that are in doctrine for years and years, and then they forget about it. They drift away from it. Say, "Well, I've gotten enough. I've stored up enough." Do not forsake her, her, and she will guard you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Um, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. With all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. See, I'm not making this stuff up. Scripture describes our occupation with truth, our abiding in the Word of God in some uh, steamy terms, expressions of intimacy from not forsaking, from loving. I mean, th- these are expressions we use in wedding services. And uh, prizing and embracing language of intimacy. Um, verse 13 says, take hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. More marital applications in those terms. Over to chapter 7. And of course, mixed in with all of this, what do we have? We're going back and forth in all these chapters from embracing the Word to not embracing the harlot. See, watch out for the strange woman. Watch out for her flattering lips. Watch out for... Uh, the lips of the adulteress that drip honey. And uh, drink water from your own cistern, in verse 15. Fresh water from your own well. That's a a total metaphor for um, sexual blessings in marriage. And uh, all the rest of this through chapter 5 with love and kisses and breasts in verse 19 and everything else. All right, verse, chapter 7, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. 
that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. So again, back and forth, back and forth from the literal activity of sexual immorality to the metaphoric use of clinging to doctrine, entering into a love affair with the Word of God. When we taught our Psalm 119 study, I told you many times how intimate this psalmist was with the Word of God. Psalm 119. And by being intimate with the Word of God, you're intimate with Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. This is our intimacy with our husband, with our uh, Lord. We are the bride of Christ. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Abide in my word. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Psalm 119.11 and, and John 7.31 are uh, synonymous passages, interchangeable passages. All right, back to the law again. Deuteronomy chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 13, and chapter 30. Deuteronomy 10.20. Deuteronomy chapter 10, um, Moses is recounting the history of the Exodus and the wilderness generation to the next generation that will actually enter into the land, describing for them the stone tablets, describing the uh, smashing of those tablets and the new tablets. And um, we're told in verse 17, For Jehovah your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality or take a bribe. Verse 20, You shall fear Jehovah your God, you shall serve him and cling to him. Cling, the old King James cleave. Cleave. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall do what? Cleave. This is language of intimacy. Marital relations. Which is not simply bodies that are connected, but souls that are connected in what God designed for a man and a woman in the Lord. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and cling to Him, and you shall swear by His name. This is language of intimacy. I, I think this is a, a weakness. This is an area where doctrinal churches fall short. That the, the devotional intimacy can um, be lost or diminished or maybe hampered maybe it destroys the mood when you start hashing out a present passive participle and we get all into the grammar and the syntax and the and the uh the aspects of of the word on a technical basis and we're accumulating information and don't get me wrong it's critical we have to we're not going to change what we're doing but I want to add to what we're doing. I wanted Psalm 119 to add to what we're doing. To create a devotional love affair with the Word, with the Lord, beyond, above and beyond the academic intellectual study, line upon line, precept upon precept. 
so we can cling to him. Chapter 11 and verse 22. And uh, that this is uh, important. Verse 18, you shall therefore impress uh, these words of mine on your heart. So this is where you take the word of God and you're not engraving it in tablets of stone. You are engraving them on your very soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons. Everything you raise your children in, the most vital is doctrine. Talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that your days and the days of your sons may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. Now notice verse 22. If you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do. Notice this if. It's like the if in if you abide in my word. Not every believer will abide in the word. But if you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you to do. To love the Lord your God. To walk in all his ways. And to cleave, cling, hold fast to him. You walk with him, you cling to him. And here again, the words in verse 18 on your heart and soul. It's the Lord in verse 22 that you cling to. That you are joined to. Over to chapter 13. And uh, chapter 13 starts to warn you against uh, dreamers of dreams, prophets, uh, slick speakers that grab everybody's attention and have these exciting messages of uh, hope and whatever. Um, You can tell if they're a real prophet or not. And uh, the point is, is don't get distracted by these false teachers. You need to love the Lord your God. So verse... uh, if they, if they start telling you, let's go after other gods, let's serve them, bad idea. <laughs> you ignore them. You love the Lord your God. You love Jehovah. Any prophet that takes you away from Jehovah is a false prophet. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Jehovah your God is testing you to find out if you love Jehovah your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall follow Jehovah, your God, and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Cling to him. How many believers are clinging to Jesus Christ? How many believers can say they're... The, the characteristic of their Christian way of life as they're practicing it, as they're exercising it on a daily basis in this day and age, how many believers are clinging, cleaving, sexually intimate, you understand the metaphor, how many are clinging to Jesus Christ? That's what abiding in the Word is all about. So we have the language that repeatedly, repeatedly, Cleaving to the Lord or cleaving to His Word is often communicated in such language. Way back now to chapter 30, the end of the book. He's handing things off to Joshua.
Back up to verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. Which one do you want? <laughs> this, is, this is Moses' own uh, choose you this day, whom you will serve moment. That's where Joshua got the concept. So see, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. And I command you today to love Jehovah, your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord, your God, may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away to serve other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. See, God is faithful in either circumstance. Faithful to bless, faithful to curse. I call heaven and earth, verse 19, to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life. Kind of bugs me the way that uh, the political action group steals this. And that's not to say I I, I criticize what they're trying to do. I'm, I'm supportive of their philosophy, but they're taking a verse that has tremendous doctrinal significance and they are uh, misusing it in a different context. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by, notice now, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, clinging to Him, cleaving to Him. Being one flesh, one spirit, intimacy with Jesus Christ. For this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. All right, three more references. thought we could make it. I believe we will. Joshua 22.5. And um, encouraging these uh, Transjordan tribes. You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you've listened to my voice and all that I commanded you. Up till now, you've done okay, but don't forsake it. So verse 4, Jehovah, your God, has given rest to your brothers as he has spoke to them. Therefore, turn now, go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Okay, This is the land that the nation of Jordan has today. It belongs to Israel, but they won't get it until... Christ hands it to them. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love Jehovah, your God, and to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to hold fast to him, cling him, cling to him, cleave to him, be one spirit in marital intimacy with him, serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Something similar in 23.8. You are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So you shall not associate with these nations and their gods and their idols. When you serve an idol, God calls that adultery. Why does he call it adultery? Because you're supposed to be clinging to him. Again, sexual language to describe our obedience and our love with Jesus Christ. The last one I'll give you is a Davidic psalm, Psalm 63, 9. That's not it.
It's verse 8. Just one verse off. 63.8 Your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. I remember you on my bed. Think about the uh, intimacy there. I meditate on you in the night watches. And then the blessing is with husbands and wives that are fellow heirs of the grace of life that can fellowship in doctrine, fellowship in the faithfulness of the Lord and the Word of God and His daily provision and His daily faithfulness. For you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me or embraces me. Think about the uh, tender language in Song of Solomon with a hand that embraces and the caressing and the things there. So, anyway. There's a lot of this in the Hebrew. (laughs) I'll let it go, but um, we've got some Hebrew students, including uh, my 16-year-old, so we'll see how much of that gets communicated at that age. I figure he'll probably pick up on just about all of it, but... Anyway, Glenn's a good teacher, and the, the Hebrew there is pretty unmistakable. All right, so knowing the truth. If you want to be a true disciple, know the truth. And if you think know the truth is limited to the uh, mentality of your soul processing uh, gnosis data, filing away uh, uh, factual information, take know the truth and, and bring it out in its full um, significance as per these passages we're seeing here and i think you get a whole new flavor for you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free thank you father for this time together and the opportunities we have to examine the word and and i do pray that um, as we are diligent to present ourselves approved we are to study to show ourselves approved and at the same time father it is not simply an emotionless Uh, factual data, information, sterile, academic, intellectual approach. Father, uh, we should uh, have this intimacy and this relationship that's offered to us and and, uh, to be properly adjusted to what our soul is designed for, what our soul is designed to respond to. Father, um, I just pray that we would come to not only uh, embrace this, Uh, but to embrace it fully to where it's an active part of our thinking, an active part of our worship in our our own personal meditations day and night. That, uh, Father, our our lives can be characterized uh, along the lines of David or the Psalm 119 psalmist or Moses. Or uh, it should be far more than any of these men because we've been given that much more revelation available to each one of us. Father, I thank you for this class. Pray for those who could not be with us this morning. And we, uh, once again, just praise you for making the provision for these classes to continue. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.